All right. We're in our last week of this series, Divine Mentor. Uh, I'm excited about it. If you've been following along, um, I think you probably noticed that God can really do some work through some of the uh, weekly projects that we've taken on as we've engaged the scriptures. Um, but let me just start here with our last week. When I was a much younger man, there was this cinematic phenomenon, this incredible moment in cinematic history called The Fast and the Furious. Who's ever seen The Fast and the Furious? Okay. It, who has seen all of them? All 37 of them. Oh my gosh, that is way more than I would have thought. Uh, how many is there? There's like seven or eight now, right? Eight of them. Okay. Wow. You all have too much free time. Uh, so, uh, so it kind of is what you would think it is, right? It's, they're all just basically like really attractive people driving really fast in really cool cars. Like, sorry, spoiler alert, uh, just ruined it for you. But they're all that. So this movie happened, and in the wake of it, under the careful instruction of Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, I took my 1991 Honda Prelude. Uh, hey, don't laugh, it wasn't funny at the time. Uh, and I began to tune, as the kids say. I started to modify my, my Honda Prelude, and it was awesome, I'm not gonna lie, it was awesome. Or at least in my mind, looking back, it was awesome. And uh, so after making one particular modification, I tightened down the suspension and I got some performance tires. What do you have to do at that point? It's really disappointing. It's a huge letdown to like do a bunch of like tuning and modification to your car and then drive it to the post office, right? That's, that's a sort of a disappointment. So I had to take it out for a road test. And so I found this back road and I was you know, whipping around going, you know, just right about the speed limit. Uh, <laughs> No, if you, if you appreciate this kind of thing, like you understand the exhilaration you get from testing the limits, right? If you appreciate that kind of thing, that makes sense to you. If you don't appreciate this, that kind of thing, that probably sounds like the stupidest idea ever, and as it turns out, you're both right. Uh, so I, I'm cruising around this corner, well in excess of the speed limit, and as I come around the corner, I see just right off to the right side in the road, but kind of on the right side, there's a rock about the size of a basketball. But I'm going way faster than I should be. And uh, so I saw it just in time to drive right over it. Right for the passenger side tires, went right over the top of it. And uh, it turns out I had instantly made a new modification to my 1991 <laughs> Honda Prelude. Because if I were to let go of the wheel at that point, my car would immediately just like turn right into the ditch. So I'm steering left the entire time from here on. And so uh, I went back to the shop where I had just gotten the tires put on, uh, literally like probably two hours before this. And uh, I'm back, my car is going the wrong direction now, and uh, this is how they get you, right? They make your car do things it shouldn't, so that you'll damage it and have to come back. Uh, it's a great scheme, I didn't know it until, until now. So I bring it in, and they take it in, they put it up on their, their hoist, and the mechanic gives it a look, and he comes back in to, to the waiting room where I'm at. And, uh, and he said accidentally something that was really profound. He said, the impact threw everything out of alignment. And then he said, you're gonna have to get realigned to get you going the right direction again. Now, I don't recommend going to your mechanic for profound metaphors for life. Uh, at least, definitely don't go to mine. Uh, just have him fix your car. But he nailed it on this one. Because there are times in life, probably just about all of us have lived long enough to experience it, when there's gonna be an impact that you didn't see coming, and you're gonna have to get realigned to get yourself going in the right direction. You know what I mean? You ever had an event that you just you didn't see it coming, and it just left you in a funk for a week, a month, 
a year, a decade. Just completely derailed. You know, if you think back in your mind, just maybe the two, three, four defining moments of your life, I bet you were on one trajectory right before that happened and on a different trajectory right after that happened. That's going to happen in life, and a realignment is going to be necessary. So let me just ask you this kind of rhetorical question. Have you experienced a life event that changed the trajectory you were on? You were going one direction before it happened, you were going another after it happened. Or have you ever had to make a decision, a crucial decision, and just found yourself completely paralyzed? I don't know which way to go. One day you feel this way, one day you feel that. Just, just stuck, completely paralyzed by indecision. Or have you found yourself working towards a particular goal or a set of goals, and then all of a sudden had your momentum just stopped by discouragement? Maybe just wiped out by something somebody said, or something that you were really hoping for that didn't work out, or you just had your joy completely hijacked by doubt or confusion. You ever have a situation like that? My guess is most of us have lived long enough that the answer is yes to at least one of those things. And if that's not the case, it will be at some point. Life is going to happen in that way. I think, we, I think we all can understand that. You find yourself stuck in a situation where you're trying to figure out, God, what is your will? What is God saying to me right now? What is God doing? You ever prayed this prayer? You got a couple of options in front of you and you're like, God, just the one you don't want me to do, just take that one out of the equation. Right? Just close, that, close the door that you want closed and open the one. I pray that prayer. pray that prayer all the time. We've all been there trying to figure out what is God's will for this situation. And if I was to try and boil down this series that we've been in to the most succinct statement I could possibly formulate, it's this. If you want to know God's will, you have to know God's word. If you want to know God's will, you need to know God's word. Remember one of the many, many, many scriptures we've thrown out uh, to that end. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Now, I think God is pretty clearly stating his intention right there, how he intends to guide you. His word is a lamp for your feet and a light on your path. That's, that's his promise, that the scripture will be our guide. Uh, I know that I have, uh, and often do, pray for God to like intervene in a situation. And you know what? Sometimes he does. Sometimes things that I didn't see coming happen, and the situation works out the way it works out. Sometimes God intervenes in that way. But what he said is, his word will be the lamp for your feet. His word will light your path. If you wonder how God plans to reveal his will to you, give his instruction to you, the answer is through his word. That's, that's what he plans. Now, there's an important second part to that. Um, God has declared his word to be a reference point. Now, now, you may or may not believe that that's true. Some, some people, some of you have been far enough down your spiritual journey that you're on board with that. Uh, but if you hang with me for just a second, I just want to point out a couple of things, a couple of ways that the Bible expresses that, that, that his word, the scripture, that the Bible is God's actual word. And then we'll sort of deal with the objection uh, to that. So, so hang with me for just a second. Uh, let me ask you this question. Is the Bible your point of reference? Uh, just think about your life. And how you make decisions, uh, maybe the people you go to when you need help, or 
the sources that you consult. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're a teenager, if you live in your parents' house, well, hopefully that's an easy answer, that you go to your parents. Um, I don't know, is that who you go to, Garrett, when you're in trouble? No! Oh, man! <laughs> He's messing with me. Uh, think about your reference point, okay? Who, who's your counselor? Who gives you your view of God? Where do you formulate that? Who or what is informing your view of God? Um, God's intention is for the scripture to do that. Now, it's not to say that your favorite Christian author couldn't speak into your life or your favorite Christian song uh, couldn't minister to you. That can and does happen. But God has declared the Bible, the scripture, to be our trustworthy authority. So uh, watch this. This is what Peter said. Peter is a historical figure. He happens to be Jesus' closest disciple, or at least one of his three closest uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, this is what he says. He says, Above all, you need to understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of cumbersome language, but Peter essentially explains that the words of Scripture came directly from God through the authors by way of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's essentially what he's saying. And so, although there are many good Christian books, Thea's a power reader. She's probably read a lot of them. I don't know if you read Christian books. That can, that can be your secret. But, um, although there are really a lot of really good Christian authors out there and a lot of really good Christian artists, you know one thing that separates all of them from Peter Two things, really. One, Peter was there. And two, he didn't get paid for it. He wasn't trying to sell anything. Uh, those, are, those are pretty significant differences, I would say. God has declared, through Peter in this case, his word to be our trustworthy authority. So if you're wondering, how is God going to reveal his will to you? <coughs> through his word. A second example would be the Apostle Paul in his second letter to Timothy. Timothy was a younger pastor that Paul was, was training to lead a church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, probably be familiar to many of you. He said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now just think about that. Teaching, rebuking. I don't really like that part too much. Sort of like... Uh, disciplining me. I, I don't really like that. Uh, but nonetheless, he says that the scripture is good for that. It's good for correcting, realigning my thinking, and training for the future. The scripture is good for that, he says. Now, the skeptic might say, well, of course Peter and Paul are going to say that. They want you to believe what they believe. They want you to believe and follow Jesus. Now, my response to that is, yes, they do want you to believe and follow Jesus. That part is true. But think about the absurdity of the argument, okay? Now, Peter and Paul are historical figures. There's no argument about whether or not they're real people. You can read about them in other places besides the Bible. Uh, but just think about the craziness of the argument that they would make it up, that they're just lying about this. For one, if Jesus is a fraud, Peter and Paul know because they were there. If Jesus was lying, if he was, uh, if he was just playing them, if he was you know, working them over to his own advantage, and he ended up being a complete fraud, they're going to know because he's dead now. But they're saying, no, he's alive. 
His words are our authority. The Bible is our authority. Now just think about the absurdity of them knowing that he was a fraud and yet claiming that we should all follow him. And he's the greatest thing ever. Of all the things they could do, the one thing they wouldn't do is go around telling people how awesome Jesus is. And telling people that Jesus' word should be your authority. It would be, it's absurd to think that they were just making it up somehow. A second response maybe to my own skepticism or maybe just your skepticism would be, what reason would they have for saying those things if they weren't absolutely convinced that Jesus really was the Savior of the world and the Bible really was God's word? What, what other reason would they have for making that claim? Did they gain from it financially? Nope, they lost everything. Uh, did they gain a life of comfort? Nope. They were actually destitute, beaten, imprisoned, uh, ultimately martyred. Did they receive fame? No, they became infamous. They were hated and despised among their own people for their beliefs. So what possible motivation would they have for saying, this is God's word, follow it? What motivation could they possibly have other than being absolutely sure that it was true? It's, it's the only explanation that makes sense. So my question, my original question was, if not the Bible... Who are your counselors? Where do you receive counsel? I'm not saying don't get it from other people, but what I am saying is get it from other people who have the Bible as their authority. Get your counsel from the Scripture. What I'm really saying is if you want to know God's will, you need to know God's Word. That's His plan for how He's going to reveal Himself. That's really always been how it worked. Uh, in fact, you can see evidence of that kind of going sideways back in the Middle Ages when uh, there wasn't a lot of literacy and the scripture, the Bible hadn't really been translated into a lot of languages yet. So what you ended up with was um, essentially the Catholic Church and the government. You kind of had state-run government uh, throughout the known world. And uh, man, it just got wonky. People just believing all kinds of things uh, that still we see the implications of today. Uh, so when people didn't have God's word, they started to believe crazy, crazy stuff like that I could buy my ancestors way into heaven. Things that make no sense. If you read the Bible, you would never get there. Uh, so when we get detached from God's word, our beliefs get, get pretty crazy. Now here at Center Church, uh, we're all, we're part of this family. And we say that what we're doing is we're helping people know Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we're about. That's our identity. That's what's important to us. Uh, if you have kids that you bring to church with you, uh, you brought them because you want them to know Jesus. Because you want them to have a relationship with other kids who know Jesus. If you came by yourself, it's to know Jesus. And it's probably because someone else wanted you to know Jesus and they invited you. That's, that's how we all got here. That's what we're doing. And we have some actionable steps. We gather here on Sundays to worship together, to serve one another. That has been a part of Christian life all the way back ever since Jesus. That's been a cornerstone, gathering together to worship God together and to serve one another. Second thing we do is we encourage everybody to be a part of some type of Christian community, uh, some type of relational circle uh, where you can have spiritual conversations. So just a just a quick poll. Uh, how many of you would say, maybe it's in the context of this church, maybe it's outside of this church, um, that you have been really blessed in your life by a circle of Christian friends? How many of us would say that that's, that that's true? You've ever been blessed of God? Okay. Everyone except Angie has been blessed 
by Christian Prince. She's the only person. Clearly there's something wrong with you. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, which I consider myself to be one of Angie's Christian friends, so I really find it unfortunate that I haven't blessed you in any way. Okay, good. So we can all see the value of that, right? We can all see the value of having that relational circle. And Pastor Rick does a really good job and works really hard to have a series of, uh, a system of community groups so that there's an on-ramp for people as they come into this community to, to find that. Uh, I have this quotable for community. Um, well, I find it quotable. Maybe it's not that great. but um, It's easy to make an objection that I'm busy. Um, I'm tired. I get that. We have a lot of things going on. Community will be hard on your schedule. Being in community with other people sometimes is difficult. But here's, uh, here's this little saying that I, I don't know if I heard from somebody else or it just occurred to me. But I think it's true. That community is hard on your schedule, but isolation is hard on your soul. If I think about the people I know who've lived in a lot of just a real isolated environment, um, the reality is uh, I, I love them, or at least I should love them, but in general, they're not the most pleasant people to be around. Because when we're more isolated, we grow inward. When we're in community, we grow outward. We actually see other people instead of avoid other people. Being in community is really, really important. Isolation is hard on the soul. So we do those two things. We gather together to worship and serve one another. We encourage everyone to be part of a relational circle. Uh, we also take the Great Commission seriously. Jesus gave all of his followers throughout human history the commission to help other people know him. Go and make disciples, he said. So we take that seriously. And lastly, the fourth thing is we try to make pathways for each of us to, to engage the scripture. Because by the light of God's word, we can see where he's leading us. It's that important. That's how we see. All scripture is God-breathed. It's from him, and it's useful for teaching us things. It's useful for uh, showing us the error of our ways. It's useful for correcting. It's useful for training us for the future. So, uh, so we try to make that a really high priority because by the light of scripture, we become complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why it's important. There's all kinds of fascinating stories in there. And my hope is we'll wrap up this, um, this series together that we'll venture into the future together by the light of God's word. When we come into our church community, sometimes what, we're, what our way is, lighted, is lit by is our past experience. Maybe something we liked or didn't like at church in the past. We're going to do this because we liked that in the past. And we're going to avoid that because we didn't like that in the past. Uh, but what, what we really need to see by is the light of God's word. Uh, because as we talked about last week, uh, the future will hold some exciting times for us. But we're really going to need his wisdom as we press ahead into that. So let's, let's just round out this series. I wanted to share a couple of, couple of stories with you from the Bible uh, that really demonstrate the importance of staying attached to God's word. Now, you might be... Uh, 10 years old and the whole rest, the whole future is all still out in front of you. It's absolutely going to be essential for you to stay attached to God's word. And you might be, you know, older than that, like closer to the other end of the spectrum and, uh, and thinking, yeah, you know, I'm just kind of coasting. But you know what? God is not done with us until he's done with us. And he has good things for you in the future. So I want to encourage you to stay attached to God's word. So let me just, let me just share a couple examples. Uh, one would be found in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, this is 
long before Israel ever had a king. Uh, actually, uh, around 400 years before Israel had a king. And God told Moses, he said, you know what, there's going to be a time when my people reject me as their king. And they're going to ask for an earthly king instead because they want to be like all the other people around them. And so God gave the people through Moses some instructions about how to choose a good king. There's a bunch of criteria. I just want to read a section of that for, for you. God bless you. Deuteronomy 17, 18, it says, When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests, and it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Okay, so God says, listen, when this king takes his throne, he needs to make a copy for himself, of the law. What is the law? It's the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the rest of the Bible hadn't happened yet. So that was the scripture that they had at that point. And he says, when the king's take, king takes his throne, he needs to make a copy on a scroll and stay attached to it every day. Read it regularly. Stay closely attached to it so that he'll know me, so that he can follow me. Now, here's a Bible knowledge quiz. If you don't know the answer to this, it's okay because you're about to. Uh, but let's just, let's just test our knowledge. God said, tell the king to take my word and stay closely attached to it every day. How many of the kings that they eventually had did that successfully? None. Some of them tried harder than others. Some of them were a little closer than others. But none of them successfully followed that instruction. Now, follow-up question for you. How did things turn out for their kingdom? Jessica just studied this like two weeks ago in school. Right? By the end of the third generation, right, right in the transition from King Solomon to his son Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. It didn't last very long. Even though all three of their first kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, all three of them made some effort to stay attached to God's word, they weren't successfully able to do this. Their kings tried to follow God, some of them, most of them, uh, and they tried to exercise godly wisdom. But as soon as they became detached from God's word, they were all of a sudden in an unsustainable situation. Now, how does that apply to you and to me? When they detached from God's word, their situation became unsustainable. What it means for us is that, you know, we can get along for a little while based on whatever knowledge bank we have, whatever God has spoken to us in the past. But eventually we're going to come to a situation where we don't know what to do. And we're going to find ourselves running on empty. Now, if you've been around for a while, doing this life thing for a while, you probably have experienced that. Once they detached from God's word, they were in an unsustainable situation. It went okay for a while, but eventually they didn't know what to do and they made a wrong turn. That's going to happen to you and me when we become detached from God's word. Second example is uh, from the life of Joshua. After God had left the people, led his people out of captivity in Egypt, and uh, they had this incredible pilgrimage to the, the land that he had promised them, their leader, Moses, he dies just before they go into this land. Uh, it's a crazy thing, and I almost read this story, and I'm like, okay, Moses did all this. He, like, he rose up and took leadership in Egypt, led them out, led them on this pilgrimage that took 40 years, led this whole nation... And then they get right to the doorstep and he dies. Like, how unfair is that? I just think, oh my gosh, that's, 
bad. But then I think, well, now he's in heaven, so he's probably not like God. Let me go back to the desert. Because uh, I've never been to Israel, but I've seen pictures, and it's a lot of dirt and rocks. So, uh, so I guess it wasn't that big a deal. But anyway, he gets right to the, to the doorstep of the promised land, and Moses dies. And God appoints Joshua to take over, to succeed Moses. And God gives him some really specific instructions. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, this is what it says. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, through all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you everywhere you go. Now, God gave Joshua some pretty clear instructions as it pertained to the law, the, the scripture that they had at that time. He said, stay closely attached to this. Meditate on it. Think about it. Let it govern your actions. And Joshua, in contrast to the kings, he actually did it successfully. He, he actually stayed attached to God's word. And God remained faithful to his word. He was with Joshua. Under Joshua's leadership, the nation was very prosperous. Um, they, they had a lot of success. He was one of the few leaders of Israel who actually led during a time of prosperity. At the end of his life, Joshua 24, 31 says, Israel served the Lord all the days of his life. God said, stay closely attached to my word, and he did it. And he has this really uh, kind of famous quotable at the end of his life, uh, right? Right in Joshua 24, what Joshua does is he calls the people of Israel to their own kind of realignment, uh, to their own kind of refocusing on, on what's important to them. Think about where they've been now. They've encountered all kinds of different cultures as they've come into this land, all kinds of different beliefs. Uh, they've had significant success as a nation. They've had a time of prosperity as a, as a people, and consequently... They've become distracted, distracted from the things that God would have them do. They've lost sight of how dependent on God they really are and how fragile their success and prosperity really is. Does that sound in any way familiar to any of you? Uh, has there ever been another people in human history who maybe lived under a similar circumstance? That's, that's us. We live in times of relative safety, relative Prosperity. We have many options and opportunities. We have plenty of things to worry about. And when we're not worried about something, we're entertaining ourselves. And when we're not entertaining ourselves, we're really busy going from one thing to the next. And when we're not doing that, we're busy recreating 
Life is full. We're like a society, like as a society, we have this attention deficit disorder. Like we hop from one thing to the next. Our lives are really full. This is how it was for Israel. They had a lot of options. At the end of his life, Joshua calls the people to a realignment. God's given Joshua to us as our divine mentor right now. So I want to read to you what he said. And this will kind of, kind of round out our time together. Joshua gathers all the people together at the end of his life in Joshua 24, verse 14. This is what he tells them. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, in general, we don't like to be told what to do. Um, Even if the person telling us what to do is right, we still don't like the fact that they're telling us what to do. And we really don't like to be told what to believe. Now, that's, that's in our nature. But think about this, the chronology of Joshua's life. He received God's instructions, stay attached to my word. And then he did it. And then God faithfully guided him through every situation he encountered. That, that seems like a really simple formula, doesn't it? Like step one, step two, step three. That seems, seems really simple. And at the end of his life, God, Joshua says to the people, you have many distractions and many options. But my strong recommendation to you is that you follow God wholeheartedly. Now, if you think there's a better way, he says, that's your prerogative. You can, you can go do that. But make your choice today. And as for me and my family, we're going to serve God wholeheartedly. As for me and my family, we're going to stay close, attached to God, and we're going to follow him only. So let me ask you this. What's the big idea? What is God saying to you, to us, through Joshua? I think that's fairly easily easy to see. He's saying we, we have many distractions. We have many options. But my strong recommendation is stay attached to me and my word. If you want to do something else, that's your prerogative. You can go do that, but, but make that choice. But choose. So the hard part from, about hearing from God isn't the actual hearing from God. It's making the space for God to speak to me. That's what will be the challenge for you going forward and for me going forward as we attempt to, to be guided through life by God's word. It's not, it's not just the hearing from God. It's really the making space for God to speak to us. So I want to give you a takeaway challenge uh, for those of you who have decided to engage the Bible. I'm going to give you two different ones, and you can decide which one of these fits for you. Uh, if you consider yourself to be a veteran Christian, whatever that means, uh, you've been through the Bible, you have a sense of, of kind of the big picture, if that's you, I want to encourage you to study through the Psalms. Uh, now, I've, I've read through the Psalms, and sometimes it's kind of foreign to me, uh, just because I realize the person writing them has a specific context, and their context looks a lot different than mine. Um, but here's what you're going to see in the Psalms. You're going to see the heart and mind of a person who knows God deeply. You may not be in their same situation, but you're going to be able to observe what's happening in their heart from the perspective of a person who knows God deeply. 
A second challenge, uh, maybe that's not you, if you consider yourself to be a, uh, we use the phrase baby Christian. I don't don't know if that should be insulting or not, but uh, whatever that means to you. If you think, uh, you know, a lot of the Bible is kind of uncharted waters for me. There's a lot of the Bible that I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me. If if that kind of fits you a little bit better, I want to encourage you to study through the Gospel of John. It records a lot of Jesus' dialogue, and here's what you see in the Gospel of John. You really see the heart of Jesus. You see who he is, and you see what motivates him. You really get to understand his heart. So I want to encourage you going forward, we're going to end our series, and we'll move on after this week, to do one of those things and allow God to continue to speak to you. You might remember uh, the SOAP method, which was really simple. Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. Read the scripture. What do you observe? How does it apply to my life? God, help me execute this. Pretty, pretty simple format. Um, so I want to just encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray.